Please open your Bibles to Matthew 13. Once again, that's Matthew chapter 13. Uh, For about the past year, year and a half or so, uh, Clint and I have been wrestling with the concept of mission. If you were here for our congregational meeting a couple weeks back, then you're probably already aware of this. Uh, As a church, we teach that while the purpose of the church is worship, its present mission is evangelism. That's essentially why the body of Christ still exists here on this planet. We don't exist merely to enjoy this life, not after sin has been introduced into the world. No, the reason we exist here in this life, the reason why Christ doesn't immediately translate us up to heaven when we believe is because God has given us all a special mission to perform either until the time of our death or until the return of Christ, whichever comes first. And that mission is to advance the gospel. The question that Clinton and I have been wrestling with is, what does that mission look like in action? And just so you know, that question isn't being asked in a a vacuum. I mentioned this at the congregational meeting It's being driven by the realization that, at least on the surface, we might not be accomplishing this mission very well. The church plant has existed for six years now, and while the church has grown, I think you all realize most of that growth has not happened through the making of new disciples. Now, of course, that's not to adopt a numbers-based approach to ministry. Hopefully, you know by now that's not how we're motivated as leadership. In fact, If we were motivated in that way, then we wouldn't be bothered right now since, as I stated, the church has grown. The church is growing, but our concern is that it isn't the right type of growth, that it isn't entirely healthy growth, and that concern is driven by a lack of converts specifically. Again, no, a church should not be driven solely by numbers. And yet at the same time, if a church is not producing converts, then there's reason to pause and ask yourself, how healthy is that church? To some degree, it's even legitimate to start asking the question, how good is the teaching there, really? After all, how good is the teaching, really, if it's not leading to an advancement of the gospel? Again, this realization has caused Clint and I to take stock of our our leadership, our teaching, in order to assess whether or not there's some defect in our approach. And during the congregational meeting, I stated that after evaluating the issue further, we've determined that this lack of growth is not reflective of some inherent defect in our leadership. In short, we think the church is still going in the right direction. Of course, that's not to say that there aren't still improvements that we can be making as leaders. There's always ways to grow as a leader. I'm just saying we don't think the lack of conversion growth is indicative of the fact that we should be making any serious changes to the overall approach of our ministry. And what I'd like to do both this morning and over the next few weeks, actually, is to more or less explain to you why we came to that conclusion. I've already told you that the next book that I want us to study is the Epistle to the Philippians, because I think there we find a fantastic example of the mindset of the evangelist. And regardless of whether or not we adopt any significant changes in the church, I still think there's, go- there's something that's going to be quite helpful for us to do, to take a look at this epistle, to pause and consider what drove Paul to pursue his mission so faithfully. Well, my original intent was to begin that study this morning, um, but to be honest with you, I need a few more weeks to study, to prepare for that. 
And although I had originally intended to delay only one week, as I got to thinking about what to preach instead, it brought me to the kingdom parables of Matthew 13. And as I started to reflect on these parables, I came to the conclusion that I don't think we should just spend one week here, but four. And the reason is because I think what occurs here in Matthew 13 will not only help explain why we think we're still on the right course as a church, but I think it will also better prepare us for what we're about to explore in the letter to the Philippians. As the name implies, the kingdom parables are parables about the kingdom of heaven. And in these parables, Jesus begins to address some questions that the disciples have about some uh, rather unexpected features to the kingdom, such as, why does this seem to be going so slow? Why is it that other people can't see what we see? Why is it that they don't believe? I think this can be a very helpful exercise for us to perform before we start thinking about the mindset of the evangelist so that that conversation isn't tinged by any unbiblical expectations about what successful evangelism looks like. If you recall, I said in the congregational meeting that, at least for me, I came to realize that at least part of my concerns about the lack of converts in our church probably stems in part from some unrealistic expectations about what successful evangelism looks like. I want to save you from making that same mistake before we begin that conversation together. I want us to explore and understand what the Bible really says about the nature of the growth of the kingdom before we jump into this discussion together so that you're not misled on that topic by a set of false expectations. And I want to begin this morning with the parable of the sower, which occurs in Matthew 13, 1 to 23. Let's begin by reading the passage together. In this passage, Jesus tells a parable an illustrative story to the crowds. And in this passage, he's going to make a distinction between those who merely hear the message of salvation without actually accepting it and those who hear the message and receive it in faith. And he's going to explain why this happens, why some merely hear and then reject the gospel while others both hear and receive it. This is a very helpful concept for us to consider, I think, as we contemplate the idea of mission. After all, I doubt that any of you have experienced 100% conversion rate in your evangelism. I mean, you've all shared the gospel with someone and they've rejected it. I'd imagine you've maybe wondered why this happens, why people reject such obviously wonderful good news as the Son of God dying for our sins so that we can have eternal life. Well, in this morning, in this passage, Jesus is going to address that question. And I think you're going to find the answer incredibly helpful as you consider its implications on the way you go about sharing your faith. The parable, once again, is the parable of the sower. It occurs in Matthew 13, 1 to 23. Let's read the passage together. And just so you know up front, this passage is broken down to three parts. There's the parable in verses 1 to 9, the explanation of the parable in verses 18 to 23, and then sandwiched in between these two parts, there's this whole exchange where Jesus explains why he's suddenly speaking in parables. And we don't have a lot of time to get into that middle part today. We really need to focus on the parable itself. But I still want us to read that section just so we can get a sense of the flow of this whole exchange. Once again, Matthew 13, 1 to 23, Matthew writes this. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. 
Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they have had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. In this morning's parable, Jesus shares a story about farming, about this sower who goes out to sow seed. And in one sense, this parable isn't too hard to understand. Its elements are so basic that uh, even a city dweller like myself can understand what's going on here. If you've ever seen someone, even if you've never seen someone sow seed before, if you've ever lived around a tree, right, you can understand Jesus' point here. It almost doesn't need an explanation. The sower goes out to sow. That is to say, he goes to plant seed in his field. This is obviously a lot of seed that he's planting. And everyone who knows what it's like when you're planting this large amount of seed, you don't go and dig a hole and plant every seed individually, hand by hand, into the ground. No, you scatter it. You scatter it broadly across the ground, understanding that as you do this, some of the seed will naturally sprout and put down roots into the ground and grow and produce crops. Well, because of the indiscriminate nature of this kind of planting, this seed naturally begins to fall on different types of ground. It doesn't just fall in the field. It doesn't just fall in the soil that the sower intends to plant seed on. It falls on some other ground around the field as well. Some of it falls along a path. That may seem odd. You may wonder how a farmer could be so reckless as to sow seed that would fall upon a path, but it's actually not strange at all because Paths in ancient Galilee didn't work quite the same way they do today. Today, roads and sidewalks are built around the edges of a person's property by local governments. And when we go somewhere, we travel along those paths. But in ancient Galilee, people didn't necessarily bother with observing property lines. 
When they traveled, they just started walking. And as they traveled, they didn't walk around the field. They walked through it. Of course, you get a large number of people traveling the same basic routes, and they would naturally wear down the path in the process. And that's just how people travel. That's a normal part of the culture. And what this means is that it wasn't uncommon for a field to have a path running right through the middle of it. That's why some of the seeds are falling along the path. A path is cutting through the middle of this farmer's field. Obviously, this ground is going to be quite hard from all the foot traffic that's passed over it. The earth has been repeated, padded, repeatedly padded down by people walking on it, so it's going to be very difficult for the seed to put down any kind of roots in this type of situation. It's just going to lie there exposed on the open hard ground, and this makes it easy pickings for any surrounding birds to come along and eat. Other seed falls on rocky ground. And this doesn't necessarily refer to ground with rocks poking up out of the soil. A farmer probably wouldn't be so foolish as to plant seed on that type of ground intentionally. Rather, this is ground with a layer of rock hidden beneath the surface. Uh, earlier this year, my wife and I decided to plant some bushes in the front of our house. And as I started to dig some holes for the bushes, I inevitably found these huge rocks. I mean, huge rocks just a few inches below the surface of the grass. I had no idea that they were there when we started digging. But as I dug, they started to show up. And as I struck these rocks, I had to dig them up out of the ground and set them aside. And the reason was because of exactly what Jesus describes here. The sower sows the seed, and some of it falls on this rocky soil. And although it's able to penetrate the earth and set down roots, those roots can't go very far because of the rocks. Now, that may not be a problem initially. Maybe there's some type of moisture trapped up on the surface. Like, if this is actually a layer of rock underneath the ground, then perhaps there's some type of moisture trapped between the surface and that rocky layer, which allows the plant to even flourish and explode in its growth faster than the plant surrounding it for a while. But eventually, the heat of the sun is going to come along and it's going to completely dry out the surface of the soil as it scorches the earth. If the plant had deeper root, that wouldn't be a problem. It'd have water to draw on, but this seed was sown on rocky soil. Its roots don't go down that far because they've been prevented by the rocks. Meaning as the sun comes in and scorches the earth, these plants will wither up and die for lack of moisture. The sun hits them, they simply dry up because they don't have the resources to survive that kind of heat. Some other seeds fall among thorns. Now whether this means that the seeds fell among like thorn bushes you know, like maybe there's a hedgerow around the property or whether it means that they actually fell among ground that has the seeds of thorny weeds on it. The point is still the same. These thorny plants are hardier and more aggressive than the plant that the farmer's growing. And so the farmer's seeds still set down roots and they begin to grow. The only problem is that these thorny plants are able to grow faster than the crops. Their roots extend down into the earth faster than the farmer's seed. They suck up all the water that's there. And then the weeds spring up over the plant and block out the sun. And before long, the farmer's plant is completely deprived of the nutrients it needs to grow by these weeds. So the plant either remains stunted or it completely withers up and dies. The rest of the seed, though, it falls on good ground. It doesn't fall along a path or rocky ground or among the weeds. It falls on good soil, which is to say it falls on soil that's conducive to grow. The ground is soft enough that the seed is able to put down roots that extend deep into the earth. It has no obstructions to prevent these roots from driving down deep into the earth to suck up that moisture. Uh, there are no competing plants to fight for this soil. The ground has everything that a plant needs to grow. It's conducive to growth. 
This ground produces a strong plant that flourishes. And as the plant flourishes, it produces a great crop, a fruitful crop. Now, some seed may land on better soil than others, and so some of these, these seeds may produce a larger crop than others. But regardless, all of this seed produces some kind of yield. That's what happens to seed when it's planted on good soil. It produces fruit. That's the basic meaning of the parable. And once again, on its surface, that's not a hard parable to understand, right? This isn't rocket science. You may even wonder, why why am I spending all this time explaining this? Because you understand that. Like I said, even if you've never farmed before, you can understand the basic elements of this illustration. But in another sense, this parable is hard to understand. Because although the elements of this story are easy to understand, the meaning of those elements in and of themselves are not. After all, Jesus doesn't offer, at least initially, any sort of explanation to this story, not here publicly. In verses 1 to 9, he just says, the sower went out to sow, and then when the story's done, he ends it at that. Now, stories can be helpful, right, when they explain a point. For example, if I say that God's love is unconditional, and then I go on to illustrate that point with the story of Hosea and Gomer, that story helps clarify my meaning of just how unconditional God's love is. But if I simply say, There was a man married to an adulterous woman and then tell their story without any sort of explanation, without any sort of context, without attempting to draw any kind of parallel, then that's not helpful, right? Because you don't know what I'm illustrating. You don't know what the point of the story is. And that's exactly what's going on here with this parable, at least from the crowd's perspective. Jesus says a sower goes out to sow and he gives the parable. And by the end, the people can understand the story, like the elements of it. That's very basic that's clear they just don't know what any of it means they don't know what it represents the point is it's supposed to teach is unclear because jesus doesn't give any hint as to what he's describing in this parable and in this way the most significant detail of these first nine verses is probably what occurs in verses one to two when matthew says this That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. Matthew says that Jesus went out and told this parable to the crowds that same day, according to verse 1. That same day, Jesus goes out of, quote, the house and sits by the sea, and teaches this parable. And of course, what this does is it draws us back into the preceding context of these verses. We hear that all of this happened the same day, and we should be asking ourselves, the same day as what? Right? And for that matter, what house? What house did Jesus leave to go teach by the sea? What's going on here? And the answer to all that is found back in chapter 12, where you find this whole exchange between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees, in which Jesus condemns the scribes and the Pharisees for blaspheming the Holy Spirit. In that chapter, Israel's religious leaders deny an overwhelming amount of evidence of the Holy Spirit's testimony to Jesus' ministry. 
They deny the Holy Spirit's work through Jesus, and Jesus responds to this denial by saying that they had committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is a sin that he says will not be forgiven. He then goes on to further explain that because of this sin, he will no longer be performing any additional signs for their repentance and belief because the hardness of their heart indicated that the only thing that awaited the nation from this point forward would be the judgment that God would inflict upon them for their refusal to accept his message of salvation. Matthew connects that whole encounter with this parable when he makes this statement that same day. Do you understand? Matthew isn't just throwing that statement out randomly. He's saying it because he wants you to understand that this parable was delivered in the context of those events back in Matthew chapter 12. This parable happens in the context of this rejection. And after Jesus finishes that encounter with the Pharisees, he leaves the house. And immediately he tells this parable of the sower who went out to sow seeds. Matthew wants you to know that. So what's the point here? Why does Jesus deliver this parable in this context without any particular kind of explanation? I think you see the answer down in verses 10 to 17 when the disciples start to ask him why he's speaking in parables. Now, I don't have time this morning to fully dig into that passage. Instead, I want to stay focused on the meaning of the parable of the sower itself. But suffice to say, what Jesus gives in his answer in verses 11 to uh, to 17, he explains that he speaks in parables because he doesn't intend to be understood by the crowds. He means for the parable to be vague. He wants to speak in a way that allows him to reveal additional truths to his disciples and to those who are ready and willing to accept his message while at the same time hiding that truth from those who've rejected it. And the reason he's doing this is because of what happened in chapter 12. The crowds have already rejected Jesus' message by believing the religious leaders' blasphemy of the Spirit. They've determined to reject the truth, and so Jesus isn't going to give them anything more. They're not worthy of it. And not only that, they're not only not worthy of it, but they couldn't accept it even if they could hear it and understand. They've hardened their hearts so much that they're incapable of receiving this truth. Now, regarding this particular parable, what what it's about, Jesus is going to answer in the next few verses, but even without any sort of explanation, we should be able to kind of get the point now. When we hear that Jesus delivered this parable that same day, It should tell us that this parable explains the rejection that just happened in Matthew 12. It explains why some are able to receive the word of the kingdom of heaven, why some are able to see the work of the Holy Spirit and accept it, and why others are not. So then, what does Jesus say? How does he explain this parable? I mean, we we may be able to determine the general sense of this parable from the circumstances that led Jesus to deliver it. We may be able to figure out the issue that Jesus is addressing with the immediate context. But what's the meaning of this parable? What is Jesus saying about Israel's rejection with this story? That may not seem clear by itself. In fact, even the disciples themselves are apparently a little perplexed by the interpretation of this parable. Luke tells us, for instance, that the disciples asked Jesus about the meaning of this parable. Mark implies that they didn't understand it. 
And that won't do. The disciples are meant to understand this parable. It's the crowds who aren't supposed to get it. And so Jesus instructs them as to its meaning, but he does so privately in verses 18 to 23. Let's read that section one more time. Here's the explanation of the parable, Matthew 13, verses 18 to 23. Jesus says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, This is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So what do we discover about the meaning of this parable from this explanation? Well, we discover that the seed refers to the word of the kingdom in verse 19. Uh, Luke uh, calls it more generally the word of God in his account of this passage. But here Matthew refers to it more specifically as the word of the kingdom. In other words, this is God's revelation of himself and his dealings with mankind. It's his revelation of his intent to restore the planet under the rule of Jesus. That is the broad teaching of the scripture. It is a revelation of God's coming kingdom and how man can be a part of that kingdom through Jesus Christ. And of course, that's what Jesus was sent to proclaim. He proclaimed the coming of the kingdom. He preached repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand the sower is the one who's casting this seed in context we should probably understand it to be a reference to christ himself primarily but it really could refer to anyone who's going out to proclaim this gospel of the kingdom the soil refers to the different types of individuals who give different kinds of responses to this kingdom message And this is really the heart of this message. If you look at verse 18, Jesus calls this the parable of the sower. But if you think about it, the point of the parable is really the soils. Throughout the story, both the sower and the seed are constants, right? They don't change. The only variable, the one thing that does change, is the type of soil. And that's where the lesson is. It's about the different reactions of the soil to this kingdom seed that causes... And what causes these reactions? Jesus begins by explaining the seed that fell along the path. This represents those who hear the message of the kingdom but don't understand it. Just as the seed that falls along the path is unable to penetrate into the earth and set down roots into the soil. So also the word of the kingdom is not able to penetrate the hearts of these individuals. And if you notice here in verse 19, Jesus uses the word understand he says this person does not understand it he uses that same word by the way back in verses 13 to 15 understand and it's the same word in the greek in every instance just as it's translated as understand every time here in the english and the connection and terminology between these verses is probably not accidental again i can't give a full exposition of that section here this morning But know that in verses 13 to 15, Jesus explains that the reason why the people could not understand the message 
is because they've willfully, intentionally blinded their eyes and closed their ears to the truth. They did not want to come to repentance, and so they willfully shut themselves off to the truth. In other words, the reason they could not understand is because their hearts were hard. It was not so much that they could not see the truth as much as it is they would not see the truth. The reason they did not understand was because they refused to understand. In the same way, we can probably conclude why does the seed fail to penetrate the ground on this path's soil? Well, it's because of this person's hard heart. The problem is not that this person cannot understand the truth of the kingdom. It's that they refuse to understand it. They refuse to accept it. In a sense, they can perhaps understand the message intellectually, cognitively. They know what it's saying, but they don't like it. So they suppress it. They push it away. Jesus says that when this happens, the evil one, that is Satan, comes and snatches away what has been sowed. Luke adds the additional detail that Satan does this, quote, so that they may not believe and be saved. So that's what the birds represent in this story. They represent Satan, who immediately comes in and removes the seed that was sown. And we can understand what Jesus is saying here. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that Satan, quote, blinds the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That is to say, Satan plays an active role in deceiving unbelievers so that they cannot accept the gospel, so that they regard it as foolishness. The picture we have here is of a person hearing the truth, closing their ears and saying, no, I don't want to hear that. No, I don't want to believe that. Only for Satan to be ready right there at hand to step in and supply the lie that will allow them to suppress that truth. You see, who is it that deceives the world? Do unbelievers deceive themselves or does Satan deceive them? And the answer to that question is yes. It's both and. Unbelievers seek to deceive themselves and Satan supplies the lies that allows them to do that. They turn away from God wanting to ignore the truth and Satan provides the red hot iron that sears their consciences so that they can ignore the truth. It's a joint effort. Satan is selling the lies that the unbeliever is desperate to buy. The inevitable result of, that, of this relationship, as Jesus explains here, is that the word of the kingdom is utterly removed from that individual. They heard the message, and perhaps they could even recognize the truth of it for a short time, but now no longer. They spit it out, And then after they spit it out, Satan comes and snatches it away. Practically speaking, this would be like the church kid who grows up and then walks away from the faith. Maybe they went went off to college, accepted some of the secular teaching they encountered there, and now they consider Christianity Christianity to be nothing more than a superstition. It's not like they spend any time thinking about the gospel anymore or considering it. After all, they don't attend church anymore. They're not reading their Bible. Perhaps they've even told their family, don't try to evangelize me. I don't want to talk about it anymore. The point is, the seed was there at one time, but it's there no longer. Because after rejecting it, Satan has managed to snatch it away. So they're not wrestling over the truth of the gospel now. They're not even thinking about it. It doesn't convict them in the slightest anymore. It doesn't have any kind of impact on them. Its influence has been completely removed. They're dead to it. 
This is why they don't believe. That's the meaning of the road soil. And in context, by the way, that's just what, what just happened with the scribes and the Pharisees and the crowds. They're seeing the truth of what Jesus is doing. They're starting to say, this is the, this, surely this must be the son of David. And they come in and they say, they blaspheme the Holy Spirit. They snatch that truth away. Jesus then goes on to explain the seed that fell on the rock and soil. Now, the thing that's interesting about both this soil and the next one is that apparently both display some kind, some kind of receptivity to the gospel. Jesus explains that this rocky seed represents the individual who initially receives the message with great joy, only to later wilt under the rejection that they face and even persecution that comes along with being one of their disciples. So again, there's a level of receptivity here. There's not an immediate rejection of the gospel like there is with the road soil. But the seed doesn't penetrate deeply enough to survive the kinds of hardships and trials that this disciple encounters. Again, there's a superficial acceptance of the gospel. But just under the surface of this soil, this individual actually possesses the same hardened heart that the road soil possesses. And this keeps the seed from really penetrating at the level it needs to in order to survive. Again, I'd imagine you've seen individuals like this before. They're willing to accept the gospel in part. Uh, They're willing to accept those aspects of the gospel, for instance, that sound good. Forgiveness of sin, the love of God, grace. They'll receive those aspects of the gospel with great eagerness. But once the other side of this message hits, once they start to experience the kind of difficulty and hardship that comes with discipleship, they immediately fall away. Like the crowds in John 6 who come to Jesus after the feeding of the 5,000 looking for more bread, They're willing to follow Christ as long as He's giving them stuff. But once there starts to be an actual cost to discipleship, they're done. They walk away. Again, they were able to accept part of Jesus' message, but not all of it. They kept their heart hard to those aspects of the message that required something of them. So when the heat starts to burn, they wither up and die. They're not prepared to endure that kind of hardship, and so they walk away. Literally, they stumble, Jesus says. That's the word that Jesus uses when he says fall away, stumble, and it can mean to take offense. That person is offended by that that part of the message, and they walk away. Of course, the ironic part of all of this is that these disciples are often those who show the most exuberance for the gospel initially. I mean, they'll be in church every time the doors are open. They'll be there at every Bible study. They'll tell all their friends about God. And why not, right? After all, it's not hard to get excited about a message that only promises blessing and joy. But the one that promises not only that, but also transformation. And transformation through difficulty and hardship as well. That takes a little bit more measured approach. So while this disciple will initially look the strongest, they will often die soon, and they'll do so precisely because they've not accepted the entire message. Now, on the other hand, the one who accepts the whole message, the one who swallows the entire thing, they may not show the same amount of exuberance initially. After all, they have joy, but it's a sober-minded joy because they, they understand what they're getting into. They've counted the cost, and they have examined the message carefully to make sure that they know what they're getting into, and they've accepted it for what it truly is. This one may not have the same kind of unbridled joy that the rocky soil has at first. But they will grow. 
And even more than this, they'll persevere because they've truly accepted that seed. They have a deep root. The thorny soil, it also shows a measure of receptivity to the gospel. This individual shows a genuine interest in the gospel, but according to Jesus, that interest is rivaled by competing interests. The cares of the world, the anxieties of life, right? Fear, worry. And not only this, but the deceitfulness of riches, materialism, greed. These things choke out that person's commitment to the gospel. This individual can see the truth of the gospel. They understand it. And at a certain level, they may even believe it and respond, but they've never really repented of their love for the world. They've never really turned away from the idols they've worshipped. And this can be more than just security or success that they're seeking. Whatever a person's greatest love is, whatever it is they desire most, whatever it is they desire more than anything else, that is the thorny plant that Jesus is describing here. This can be something like the praise of men. It can be physical pleasures like alcohol or sex. It can even be something more wholesome and and worthy of desiring so long as it's placed under the authority of Jesus. Things like family and friends. The problem with this person, this one with a thorny heart, is that they haven't given themselves over to complete commitment to Jesus just yet. They still have idols that they're worshiping and they're trying to hold on to both Jesus and the idol at the same time. They want Jesus and their career, Jesus and their immoral relationships, Jesus and respect from their peers, Jesus and their friends. They're okay with Jesus. They like him. But they only like him so long as he doesn't take the things they love from them. And this doesn't work. As Jesus says, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will, ha- or he will have to be devoted to one and despise the other. Just as a slave can only be completely devoted to one true master, so also a person can only have one supreme desire that drives the direction of their life. And whatever that desire is will, deter- will uh, be determined when conflicts or other competing desires come up. At that point, the individual will have to choose which desire to follow. And in choosing to follow the one, they'll inevitably neglect the other as well. In other words, if you're more committed to your job than you are to Jesus, then you're inevitably going to fall away. You're going to pay more attention to your job than you will to Jesus. And in the long run, your career will so dominate your life that Jesus will become an afterthought. It won't be so much that you'll outright reject Jesus, you'll eventually just forget about it. This is what happens to the seed that's sown in the thorny soil. This type of person hears the gospel, and they actually approve of it, and they want to believe it on a certain level. But as much as they love Jesus, they love these other things more. They have idols that they worship and love more than Jesus, and they choose to follow them. And this can happen suddenly, as it does with the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, right? You guys recall that passage? This man heard Jesus' demands, and he wanted to respond to the gospel. But then when Jesus told him that he would have to sell all his possessions to enter the kingdom, the Scripture says that he went away sad because he had many possessions. He recognized the truth, and he wanted to respond, but he loved his things more. So he counted the cost, realized he couldn't cut it, and he just walked away. His concerns for the world sprung up immediately and choked out the gospel right away. 
This kind of concern can be immediate like that, or for others it can be more gradual. They may never actually even determine to walk away like the rich young ruler did. They just sort of slowly drift away over time. They begin strong. Again, they faithfully study the Scriptures. They're at church every week. They're talking of Christ. They're seeking to grow in their faith. They're sharing the gospel. It's just that they're trying to pursue their interests in the world at the same time. And over time, their interest in Christ just wanes little by little, almost imperceptibly. One thinks of Paul's companion, Demas, who was there by Paul's side as he wrote the letter of Colossians under house arrest, and who would later then desert Paul out of a love for the world as Paul neared his death. We've all seen people like this before. Maybe you've even had a Demas in your life at one point. Someone who received the gospel in joy and they were a faithful disciple for a period of time before they just eventually drifted away. And it's a heartbreaking experience to see someone who can see the truth of the gospel so clearly and even respond to it with great love and approval just to walk away out of their great love for the world. So much better it is to see the seed that falls on good soil. That seed doesn't wither under the hardship of trial. It hasn't been choked out by the competing desires of the world. No, it accepts the whole message and its roots dig deep into the soil. It takes firm root. And then as it's nourished by the life that's found in the full acceptance of this message, its leaves stretch up high into the sky. And as it grows, there are no weeds to block out that sun. And so it drinks in both the sun and the rain, and it not only perseveres, it flourishes. And it produces an incredibly great yield. And you may be asking yourself, what kind of yield? What does the fruit of this crop look like? If you see here, Jesus doesn't tell us directly. But it's probably safe to assume that he's speaking of the fruit of repentance. For instance, when John the, when John the Baptist proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of heaven, he warned that those who didn't bear fruit in keeping with repentance would be cut down and thrown into the fire on a couple of different occasions. In this very gospel, Jesus has also said that you can tell a tree by its fruit and in both instances, when he does this, it would seem that he's talking about a person's deeds. So what's the fruit here? It's the fruit of repentance. And repentance, as Jesus describes it throughout the rest of this gospel, it's humility before God and dependence on God and love and compassion springing up out of faith. It's what Paul refers to as the fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians. It's godly character in the true sense of the word. This is how you can determine whether or not the seed falls on good soil. The seed that falls on good soil produces good fruit. To put it simply, how do you know whether or not has, uh, a person has truly received the gospel? It's by their righteousness. It's by their fruit. It is, and, and listen, I know this can sound scary when I say this, but the way you can know, guys, is by their deeds. Again, I know that sounds scary. Once belief is measured by deeds, and there's this inevitable question that comes up, which is how many deeds, right? How much fruit? That's a scary question to ask because it can make us think that salvation is by works. You know, just meet X or Y standard and then you can know that you're saved. But the question isn't really how much fruit should a Christian have, but rather do they have any fruit? Look, Jesus doesn't say that everyone is going to have the same amount of yield here, right? He actually walks the number down backwards. Some plants yield a hundredfold. Some 60 some only 30. 
That's not emphasizing that's not emphasizing the abundance of the harvest. It's emphasizing the fact that there is a harvest. The last plant may only have a third of the fruit that the first one has, but it still bears fruit. The point is the seed that falls on good soil bears fruit. This is how you know it's good soil. And at this point, I would imagine that there are all kinds of different theological questions that can be raised here once we understand the meaning of this parable. For example, one of the questions that probably arises from this parable is, so is this parable saying that a person can lose their salvation? Like the rocky soil produces a plant, but then it dies. Is that describing someone who believed and was saved and then lost that belief? Well, for that matter, what about the thorny plant? Jesus says that the weeds choke it out, but does it die? Or is it just stunted in its growth? Could that be describing someone that truly believes but is sort of caught up in the world that they have trouble producing fruit? Another question that probably comes up is, you know, so, so then is this saying that there's nothing a person can do about their salvation? After all, the seed falls on these different types of soil. It's the type of soil that determines whether or not the seed takes root. And it's not as if the soil can exactly change itself. It can't get up and move to another location, right? So does this mean that if I'm the thorny soil, then my situation is helpless? And if I determine that someone else is road soil, then I should just give up on them and stop sharing the gospel. And I could try to answer those questions within the scope of this analogy, but really, if we go that far, I think we're actually kind of missing the point of this parable. Keep in mind, Jesus isn't trying to communicate a full-orb theological system with this parable. He's simply addressing a particular theological issue with an illustration. That's all. And so rather than try to answer those questions with this parable, I think it's better that we just try to keep in mind what Jesus is addressing and why he's addressing it. What he's addressing is why some receive the gospel and others don't. That's the issue that's at play in this parable. And if we're paying attention here, I think we can see that he's doing this for really two different reasons. Number one, he's doing this in order to encourage the good soil, to encourage his disciples by explaining to them why their brothers aren't believing. That would be an encouragement for those first believers, just as it would have been for Matthew's Jewish readers, just as it is for us today, to know why some reject the clear truth of the gospel. And then two... It would appear Jesus is doing this to challenge those who see the truth of the gospel but who are slow to fully embrace it. Remember, he's not just teaching this parable to the disciples. He's preaching it to the crowds as well. There's some benefit there for them. There are some people in the crowd who have ears to hear this parable and can understand what Jesus intends for this parable and are wondering what to do with it. If I could put it this way, there are people in the crowd who are hearing this message of the kingdom and they understand and they want to believe, but they're not sure what they should do. To them, this parable serves as a warning. It's Jesus telling them, my message won't be received by everyone and it won't be enough for you to give some kind of superficial or temporary commitment. If you want to be in my kingdom, then you need to commit all the way. That's the faith that I'm demanding here. There's rocky soil out there in the crowd that's beginning to wilt under the pressure of these religious leaders. And Jesus is calling on that soil to repent. 
There are these rich young rulers there in the crowd. There are Demases in the crowd consumed by the things of this world. And Jesus is using this parable as an invitation for them to repent. They can understand. They can receive the seed and understand it. And they want to respond, but they're concerned by the things of the world or they're concerned about persecution, and Jesus wants them to repent. Point is, this parable is intended to challenge the hearer to examine themselves and to then bring them to repentance. In other words, soil can change. That's the whole point of the parable. For the thorny soil to become good soil. For the rocky soil and the road soil to become good soil. I mean, let's face it, right? None of us enter into the world as good soil, do we? The Bible makes that point absolutely clear. We all begin as either rocky or thorny or hard soil. And yet God will sometimes come along and plow up the hard soil and remove the rocks beneath the surface and pluck out the weeds as they spring up so that the seed that was once rejected during the first 20 or 40 or 60 planting seasons finally takes root for the first time and bears fruit. And so as we consider the implications of this morning's passage and its impact on how we as a church should think about this idea of mission, and and there are many, many implications. Still this morning, I would encourage you to consider just one. Just one implication, application. And that's to simply keep sowing. Keep sowing. In other words, if there aren't immediate immediate results to your efforts to spread the gospel, brothers and sisters, don't be discouraged by the fact that there aren't numerous or immediate responses. The issue may not be your sowing. It may simply be that you're sowing on hard ground. I said at the beginning of today's message that after evaluating why there seems to be a lack of conversions in our church, Clint and I still determined that we, we think we're still on course, there, that no major changes need to occur in the direction of our ministry. And a lot of the reason for that is because when we talk with you guys, what we see is that you are sharing your faith. You're sowing seed. You understand when we start looking at results and start assessing why the results aren't there, what passages like this one have to tell us is that really those results have less to do with the sower and more to do with the condition of the soil. I mean, if there's no crop, right, and the sower just isn't sowing, then then clearly you can point a finger at the sower, or maybe you can point it at the people encouraging the sower to stay in bed and rest, right? But if the sower is being encouraged to sow, and then if he or she then goes out and does sow, and still there is no crop, how would this parable explain the reason for that lack of crop? Right? It would point to the condition of the soil. And in this case, the sower can't really be blamed for that, right? Because it's not as if we as Christians possess the power to make the spiritually dead alive, right? That, that act of regeneration is reserved to the power of God alone. And so what's important is that the sower sow. And so long as they are sowing, that's all they can do because the rest of the work depends on the condition of the soil. I think of the various valleys that exist in California, the the Central Valley, for instance, and 
even the San Fernando Valley. I remember about the first month we moved out to L.A. Uh, one of the things that, that, believe it or not, one of the things that caught my attention as we went for walks in the San Fernando Valley was the size of the rose bushes there. I mean, it's just, it was, it was amazing. It's like every other bush, there were rose blossoms on it bigger than my fist. It was just, it was, I'd never seen anything like it. And suddenly it dawned on me, oh, that's why they have the rose parade in Pasadena every year. It's because this is the perfect climate for growing roses. And it's the same way when you get into the Central Valley. The Central Valley of California is one of the most productive pieces of farmland in the entire world. It's the world's largest class of, uh, patch of Class One soil, which is the best type of soil there is. It has about a 25-degree swing in temperature from day to night, which is about perfect for most plants. It has 300 days of sunshine a year. In other words, you wouldn't expect farmers in Missouri to match the sort of productivity that you'll find among those in California's Central Valley. And that isn't because of the quality of the farmers from one place to another, but because of the quality of the soil, the quality of the climate those farmers are working in. Well, when we see a, a lack of crop and then we talk to you and see that you're sharing your faith, the conclusion that Clinton, Clint and I come away with is that we're very likely ministering in a spiritually unique climate. I know a lot of people always like to point to the book of Acts as a model of how the gospel should be advancing when ministry is done right. And they point to the thousands upon thousands of people who are being converted under the ministry of the apostles. But what's often overlooked is that if you're judging ministry success by that measure, then apparently the apostle Paul or even Peter were way better evangelists than Jesus himself. Since it doesn't seem that he was able to match those kinds of numbers during his three-year ministry around Galilee. See, what's missed is that in the book of Acts, you have missionaries going out to God-fearers who already had faith but simply hadn't heard of Jesus. They essentially needed their theology updated to include the fact that the Messiah that they already hoped in was, in fact, Jesus of Nazareth. This is where so many of these thousands of converts are coming in at first. They were working incredibly rich soil. That's probably not the case here in southwest Missouri. I tend to think of the ground in Missouri not as the Central Valley of California, but probably closer to what happened in Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl, meaning the ground is almost exhausted. It's been worked to death. Of course, by this, I don't mean that everyone here has heard the gospel. They haven't, but by and large, the fact is they've probably heard something sort of like the gospel, and they've rejected it. And I think the challenge that we're going to face as evangelists is to make sure that as we sow seed, that we don't become so eager for results that we begin to consider the plant on the rocky soil or the thorny soil as legitimate growth. Because it's not. All to say, the spiritual climate is different. It's very unique. And that very well may be why you are sharing your faith and failing to see results. And the thing I want to tell you here this morning is don't let the fact, don't let the fact that your crop is small discourage you from sowing. Don't let it discourage you from sowing. I, I reckon it can be discouraging to sow and not see a harvest. I know I can certainly get discouraged from time to time. In fact, as I 
shared with you during the congregational meeting, I often get to the point where it can make me think either I'm doing something wrong as your, as your pastor or perhaps I'm, not even cut out, I'm even not cut out to lead you. But what you must remember is that it's not the quality of the soil that you're responsible for, but the act of sowing. And don't let the lack of crop discourage you from that task. God will judge you faithful so long as you keep sowing. And with that in mind, I'd like to close this morning with a reading from 1 Corinthians. In case you aren't aware, the Corinthians were prone uh, to give too much credit to the sower and not enough credit to God for the amazing work that was being performed through the efforts of men like Paul and Apollos. And Paul discourages that sort of thinking with the following words. He says this, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Let's close this morning by praising God for the work that he's produced in us and by praying to him for continued growth. Let's pray.